You've reached Voicemails from History, a show which collects mementos from the past, a speech, conversation, poem or interpretation, to tell stories of how the past affects the present. You have one new voicemail. September 13, 2005, Janelle Talaverni, a Kurdish guerrilla fighter and political statesman and the first democratically elected president of Iraq, walked beside President George Bush into the East Room of the White House. Talaverni might have marvelled that when he had started his struggle against the government of Iraq, Harry Truman was president of the USA. Now, the former Kurdish guerrilla fighter was dressed in a tailored suit and silk tie representing Baghdad in Washington. His message read, Thank you, Mr. President, for your kind remarks. It is an honour for me to stand here today as a representative of a free Iraq. Talibani and Bush could not have been more different. Bush was born in 1946, the same year the teenage Talibani had joined the student underground resistance movement against Iraq's monarchy. By the time George Bush was in boarding school, Talabani was leading a guerrilla war against Baghdad that would go on fighting for the next 40 years. Alongside him was Mullah Mustafa Barzani, who, when George was born, had already founded the Kurdish Democratic Party whilst exiled in Iran. Now, in 2005, Talabani was giving his gratitude because the people who supported his presidency did feel truly indebted to America. Those people were not Iraqi Arabs, but Kurds, for whom America at the time was still a friend and liberator. During the press conference, Talabani answered press questions in both English and Arabic, and the last question was asked and answered in Kurdish. After a century of struggle, a head of state had spoken Kurdish in the White House, and the flag of Kurdistan had been planted in Washington, D.C., Hi guys, welcome back to Voicemails from History with your host Nishda Amin. I took that extract from the opening paragraphs of a book called Invisible Nation, authored by Quill Lawrence. What's remarkable about those lines written in 2008 is just how far the Kurds had indeed come since their struggle starting in the 1940s. But now for me, reciting them out loud in 2022, how the Kurdish situation is still very much delicate, and wriggled with competing interests. It's almost like 2005 happened, the flag was raised, and since then we've just been struggling to keep that flag standing. The trajectory of Kurdish political history has been a lot like playing Jenga. A structure is built, a positive step is taken, and then something happens, like an ally pulls out, or there's inter-Kurdish rivalry, and the structure comes tumbling down. So far in the season, we've looked at the Kurds in Iran and the reasons behind the collapse of the Republic of Mahabad, led by Qazi Muhammad. We're going to turn to Iraq as our new focus. I like to think of Iraq as a country comparable to Victor Frankenstein's creation. If you've read the book Frankenstein by, Sherry, uh, by Mary Shelley, if you haven't, by the way, I'd recommend it. He's this mad scientist who creates a human out of multiple other diseased humans and then uses electricity to bring it to life. It's a fantastic story. 
In a similar way, and on a less fantastic note, the British came along in the 1910s and, like a mad scientist, stitched together a country who they called Iraq. Made up of a mix of ethnicities and religions, Arabs, Shia and Sunni, Kurds, Turkmens, Jews, Christians, Assyrians, Yazidis, Thalilors, Persians, Armenians and so on. Now, the area of Iraq had been previously under the Ottomans, of course, and when the Ottoman Empire collapsed at the end of World War II, the Westerners came in, the British with their electricity, i.e. their military and economic force, and they carved up the Middle East into the countries of Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Turkey, Palestine and Israel. Now, Kurdish history throughout the 20th century has been a tale of odd ends. At least that's how I think of it. Up until the 60s, um, in that sort of first half of the 20th century, the Kurds in Iraq were politically ostracised and punished for independence aspirations. But within that first half, their ethnicity was not targeted in the same way when we compare it to Iran, Turkey and Syria, who the Kurds... Uh, they they were experiencing um, displacement and ethnic cleansing from the beginning. However, up until the 60s in Iraq, which is our focus for today, the Kurds were not fighting for language and cultural rights as much as they were fighting for political and economic ones. Then, after the 60s and throughout the 70s, the Ba'athis emerge as the new leaders of Iraq, and from that point on, the tide turns dramatically, and ethnic cleansing of the Kurds does occur, culminating in its most bleak, dramatic form with the use of sarin and mustard gas on the Kurds of Holabja in 1988. This is sort of during the last days of the Iran-Iraq war. And we'll discuss that next episode. So I kind of want to split Kurdish history in Iraq into two points. So sort of 30s to 50s and then 60s to the 90s. Now I'm going to recount my selection of highlights. We're going to look at key moments in Iraqi history whilst obviously focusing on the Kurds. Our main figures for today are Mullah Mustafa Barzani, King Faisal I, the Prime Minister uh, Nur al-Sa'id, and a host of other political parties, and the Iraqi figure of Abdul Karim Qasim as well. And we'll discuss how Iraqi nationalism grew and materialised alongside the Kurdish form, and the different fears that gripped Baghdad until the late um, 1950s. Right, so I just took a pause after recording that segment, and I realised that I said that the Ottomans crumbled after World War II, Obviously, I meant World War One. I. I do know my chronology. I'm just a bit tired. So I'm not going to re-record that segment. We're just going to crack on ahead. Um, so I thought I would title today's episode as Hope and Discord as a way to sort of summarise the different sides of the Barzani tribe's legacy um, in Bershaw Kurdistan. Because on the one hand, they managed to put the Kurds of Iraq up onto this political pedestal and they took control of the government um, sort of in the 90s and 2000 onwards. And Mustafa Barzani himself continues to be one of the most influential Kurds of the 20th century. However, in the present day, there is rising anger, resentment and bitterness towards the Barzani family and their party, the Yekati, also known as the KDP in English, for their corruption, 
nepotism, their mishandling of government positions and um, the sort of general lack of attention and care needed to build a comprehensive state that meets the demands of the Kurdish population. And I'll talk more about this in the next episode. Okay, so from 1921 to about 1964, the Kurds launched a series of rebellions against the Iraqi central government. Now, like many post-colonial countries, the various rulers uh, all sort of struggled to govern their plural societies under the supposed Western ideal of a monolithic nation state, like one race, one language, one flag. And two things were happening in Iraq at the time it was sort of, quote, founded in 1920. The first thing was the British Mandate, where it put a pluralistic society into a set border zone and declared that an Arab Hashemite, Faisal I, would be the new king. And obviously putting a king on the throne of a mandated state is an incredibly British thing to do. Now... Their imposition of this king um, was obviously more to benefit the British, and many people refer to Faisal as a puppet king. Externally, he was declared as being this God-appointed monarch um, that was going to rule over this, this newfound country, but internally, it was more just to have a, quote, native as the face of the new country, with Britain pulling the strings behind behind the curtains. Now, calling Faisal I a puppet king is a bit contentious because some historians argue that he had a lot more agency um, than is usually assumed, and I'll come back to this point when discussing pan-Arabism in a bit. Now, we need to be mindful that when we talk about Middle Eastern nationalism and how it formed, it's a different playing field depending on which group you're studying. In the 1910s and 20s, the Ottomans had disintegrated, and previously, under the Ottomans, the primary markers of belonging for Arabs and for Kurds was religion and geography. So religion dictated their actions, both personal and public, and geography related to which land they were born in and their clan's control of that territory. During the Ottoman Tanzimit reforms, the Ottoman sultans tried to instill this new idea called Ottomanism into their subjects. So this was the sort of um, attempt to install a more European sense of, of, gover- of governance onto their, onto their subjects. And they declared that everybody in the Ottoman Empire was equal, was a citizen to the Ottoman sovereign, in a bid to move away from the sort of pre-1830s um, multicultural empire that it was, this mosaic of different identities. Now, most historians agree that what Ottomanism actually did was not bring together these mosaic pieces, but rather it sort of illuminated and strengthened the differences between the groups, and it led to them viewing themselves as being separate, distinct, and therefore deserving of independent rule, whether that's tribal, regional, or sort of state-level independence. So by 1919, as World War I is being signed away at the Palace of Versailles, the Middle East is in this embryonic stage of growing national aspirations. At the same time, the British and the French were playing a game of Monopoly, Middle East edition. Iraq was for the British, they fought off the Turks for control of Mosul and made sure that Mosul went to them, not the French. Now, whilst Mosul was important at the turn of the 20th century, arguably the city which is even more important, and probably still is, is Kirkuk, 
which from the 20s was found to have these vast oil fields and they called it sort of black gold back then. Now control of the city would prove to be central to the demands of the British, the Arabs and the Kurds and control of Kirkuk would switch hands quite a few times throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. The last time it was 2017 when Iran annexed the city, taking it away from the Kurds. So going back, when Faisal I was installed as king, the Kurdish provinces showed their disdain, and I mentioned this in episode one of the season. Suleimani boycotted the referendum of his rule, and Kirkuk passed a no-vote result. Arnold Wilson, who was the deputy of the British colonial office um, at this time, described the Kurds as a, quote, troublesome bunch of people who will never accept an Arab ruler. So from the beginning, the British were aware, as were the Arabs and Kurds, that this new system was going to create problems. So before we discuss Iraqi nationalism, I want to introduce the figure of Mustafa Barzani. In his book, The Kurdish War, David Adamson recounts an interview of Mullah Mustafa Barzani. Barzani was asked, when did he become a national leader? And his answer was, when at the age of a few months old, I was imprisoned with my mother because of my family's rebellion. Lawrence Quill backs this up in his book as well, explaining how Mustafa Barzani's grandfather and older brother were hanged for different rebellions against the Ottomans in 1905 and 6. Now, Mustafa Barzani earned himself a number of nicknames on the spectrum of both affection and cursing, depending on who you're sort of talking to. And he made a name and legacy for himself as his 40-year-long guerrilla fighter and commander. His tribe and namesake come from the region of Badazan in the north of Iraq. And it's a rather remote, mountainous, um, rough terrain zone, quite isolated from the big provinces of Erbil, Suleimani and Kirkuk. Now, Mustafa Barzani also held, um, holds a sort of record number of countries he took aid and refuge in as he fought over for four decades. The Soviet Union, Baghdad, the Shah of Iran, the Israelis, the Jordanians and the British and the Americans. So from being born in 1903, from that point on, the man essentially did not stop running and fighting. The general arc amongst historians is that he started off motivated to defend his tribe and his and his sort of land and then grew to be more politically expansive. He never claimed goals of becoming a king of Kurdistan, but he did eventually, you know, become this Kurdish revolutionary icon. In 1946, following his involvement in the Republic of Mahabad in Iran, he founded the KDP, the Kurdish Democratic Party and later formed what would become the Kurds National Army as well. And he died in exile in 1979 in the USA. So let's discuss the Barzani rebellions. The first Barzani rebellion was led by Mustafa's older brother, Ahmed Barzani. And the sources indicate of rumours spreading that he was trying to create this deviant religious um, sect or pathway, encouraging his followers to drink alcohol and eat pork and also to change the direction of the Qibla, which is the direction Muslims pray in towards Mecca. On the surface, this kind of seems like a sort of petty religious dispute, but some historians argue that it was necessary for Faisal I to prevent these deviant Islamic elements growing in Iraq. 
Other historians attribute the resettlement of Assyrians on the borders of Barzan and nearby areas as infringing on Ahmed Barzani's land and supplies. So they start to rebel and fight back, and in sort of late 1931 to 1932, the Iraqi government, with the support of the British Royal Air Force, the RAF, they moved to punish the entire Barzan region. The fighting was intense for the Kurds as they were being targeted via land and air and were in considerably less numbers than their Iraqi counterparts. However, the nature of this war is interesting because there were several points from November to December 1931 when the Barzanis inflicted severe losses on the Iraqi Arab army. And there were many instances where the RAF was actually being used to rescue the Iraqi Arabs, not targeting the Kurds. Eventually, however, Kurdish supplies ran out and they have no or you know, they had no external backer. This is the Iraqi government being backed by the RAF, bombing a fighting force of less than a thousand men. So by the summer of nineteen thirty two, Ahmed Barzani gives up and he flees to Turkey to seek asylum. They were repatriated on the grounds of being spared, but were moved into exile into the cities of Nasiriya and then Sleimani as well. Now, it's important to note here that despite the heavy casualties and the impoverishment of the Kurdish lands, the Iraqi army's uh, reputation was badly damaged. They had essentially had their deal cut for them for over eight months a group of these you know Kurdish guerrilla fighters had managed to put up such a significant resistance and it forced the Iraqis to seek British aid and bearing in mind at this time the Iraqis are trying to move away from um, British reliance. Regardless though the Barzani brothers were exiled so that's Ahmed and Mustafa. Next came the Second Rebellion. In 1943, Mustafa returned and he found his people, the Badazan tribe, uh, starving on the mountainsides. A famine had occurred and the government had neglected to respond. He sent messages to Baghdad asking for supplies and aid, but he was rejected. And this became the impetus for the Second Rebellion, this time led by Mustafa himself. Now, as well as fighting the economic rejection Baghdad had insulted them with, Barzani upped his demands and he requested that Baghdad declare a new set of rules or conditions for the for the Barzan region, but also more broadly for the Kurds. So whilst this first, sorry, the second rebellion was motivated by economic grievances, I think the chronology makes sense in that it also inspired a widening of the demands um, when it became sort of clear to Mustafa Barzani that Kurdish requests were not being prioritised by the king or by the cabinet. And there are also citations suggesting that Barzani was in contact with a new political organisation called Hiwa. Hiwa means hope in Kurdish. This party had formed back in 1935 and had been in contact with Mustafa since then. And it was reported that Hiwa had held some of its meetings in Barzan and that it, it had become a temporary HQ um, for the party itself. Now, the organisation had these two broad aims, political autonomy, and the second one was to, quote, not encumber itself with ties to a foreign power. And their plan was 
in a sort of a few steps. It was to unite all the tribes, receive autonomy for the Kurds, oppose colonial policies of Iraq, and to form a Kurdish army. Now, the Hiwa did have strength. It had around 2,000 permanent members. Many of them were young professionals in the main cities, including Baghdad, as well as some of the officers in the growing Iraqi army. The Hiwa was also reportedly in contact with another fellow called Majid Mustafa, who we'll discuss in a bit, and he was elected as a Kurdish minister in the Iraqi cabinet office. Many of the army officers in this in this second rebellion were affiliated with Hiwa, and the military force which Hiwa had aimed for did materialise because they united the tribes as part of this Badazani confederation, and a force of about 5,000 Kurdish men were put together. So the rebellion begins in 1943. Mustafa Badazani kickstarted things by attacking police stations at the cities of Shandar and Khrizok successfully, which gained him trust from his men and also government ammunition. The Iraqi Prime Minister Nouda Said sent messages, as did the British, to stop and surrender. An Iraqi army column was sent and it was defeated. More stern warnings from the British embassy continued, urging Barzani to reach an agreement with Baghdad. On December 25th of that year, the Prime Minister had a cabinet reshuffle and he appointed a Kurdish minister as head of Kurdish affairs called Majid Mustafa as a way to show that Iraq would begin to listen and prioritise the Kurds. This did have a halting effect on Barzani's attacks. However, the conciliatory gesture seemed to actually propel Barzani to ask for more, not to just stop there. And it was at this point that his actions suggest a break away from simply defending his tribe and, and sort of entering wider talks about political um, power. Now, Barzani put forward a list of demands, which at the time, the 1943, were pretty impressive in, in its confidence. He asked for a new Kurdish province to be made, which would include Erbil, Slimani, Mosul, Duhok, Ahmadiyya, Akra, Sinjar and Kirkuk. So these are like massive you know, cities, provinces already in Iraq. Second, that this new ostensibly Kurdish province would be governed by a Kurdish cabinet minister. Third, that there would be cultural, economic and agricultural autonomy, except for matters um, regarding the army. The fourth uh, term was to dismiss Arab officials who were deemed as corrupt in the Kurdish regions. And finally, to formally declare that Kurdish would be the new official language of this region. So like I said, this is a really bold move, one of his boldest, because he was in effect asking for a sub-state to be created whilst Iraq at this point was still making itself. It was barely 20 years old. He wasn't asking for secession or for complete independence, but really that wasn't the point. Mustafa Barzani had at this point planted a more modern 20th century idea into Kurdish nationalism in, in, in Iraq by asking for greater autonomy. Of course, this did not go down well with the Iraqi government and the Hashemite monarchy. The Barzanis were making a name for themselves as spearheading a new Kurdish movement, and as well as fears of a war, the more visceral fear was separation. 
However, the Prime Minister, Nur Saeed, he did show quite a sincere desire to make amends, um, perhaps sensing that further retaliation would simply incense the Kurds further. A new list of terms were agreed to, ferried back and forth by the Kurdish minister, Majid Mustafa. Now, despite the efforts of the Prime Minister, the overwhelming anti-Kurdish bias in the cabinet prevented um, peaceful and long-lasting terms to be reached. So the Kurdish writer, Ma'ruf Shiawuk, he writes that the way the cabinet reacted to the Barzani rebellion of 1943, essentially purposefully it put the Kurds in a bind, it, it tied the hands of the Barzanis to such an extent that it simply fomented more trouble. So the terms that were being negotiated were the Barzani clan would be allowed to return to Barzan in safety, but Mustafa himself would still be sent into exile. Second, that Mustafa Barzani, before his exile, would travel to Baghdad to formally uh, make a submission to the government. Third, that there would be, yes, a new legion of officials presiding over the Kurdish cities, but no agreement or um, trust was reached on the ethnicity of those officials. Fourth, the central government would start to open schools, uh, schools, build bridges, police posts, roads, etc. And the last two terms were perhaps the most important ones. So the fifth term was that there would be a general amnesty for the rebels who had joined the Barzanis, but this was not enacted properly and it excluded the Kurdish army officers who had joined the Barzani rebellion, and it put them, therefore, in a very difficult position. They knew that without an amnesty from the government, they would be hanged, so many of them continued resisting, preferring to die fighting. So this delay in the amnesty continued to be this key source of tension, because if you declare an armistice, the longer you delay the peace treaty, the, 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 sort of the, um, the slimmer the chances of peace are. On a similar note, the government also asked the Barzanis to point out who rebelled with them, so to, to, to sort of hand over the rebels, which the Barzanis were not going to do, because they would be effectively passing a death sentence on those who had risked their lives for them. And the sixth demand was the government um, asked the Barzanis to hand back all the weapons um, which they had acquired during the rebellion, and that exacerbated fear as well because many of the Kurdish factions were not willing to hand over their guns with no proper agreement or amnesty made yet. So it was this state of limbo that went on for a few months which both sides found themselves in. The Iraqis still had the upper hand and the Kurds knew this and they weren't willing to give up so so easily. Then things start to get worse. So February 22nd, Mustafa makes his journey to Baghdad to make his formal submission to the government, and he took an entourage of his leading chieftains with him. But the travel to Baghdad didn't have the effect either side wanted. The sight of Kurdish guerrilla warriors armed heavily did very little to appease the staunch Arab nationalists and there was a violent press attack as well with the news turning public opinion against the Kurds and Barzani quite heavily. So this formal submission visit simply strengthened the mutual dislike they had for each other. Now May 1944, a few months later, 
Nouda Saeed, the Prime Minister, decides to go on a tour of the Kurdish regions and assess the situation for himself. And he finally agrees to creating a Dahok province, which would include Dahok, Zahor, Ahmadiyya, Akra, and the Sheikhan part of Mosul. He also agreed to a Kurdish deputy general in the Ministry of Education and the granting of agricultural loans. Despite these efforts, though, his own cabinet rejected these terms. Um, and obviously the key source of tension was the Dahok province, which was deeply resented by the Arabs and the king himself, who at this point, by the way, is one of Faisal's sons because Faisal dies back in 1933. Now, this stalemate led to a cabinet crisis, and on the 3rd of June, the Prime Minister resigned. So at this point then, the attempts towards a peace settlement between Mustafa Barzani's faction and Baghdad was becoming incredibly strained. Now, the new cabinet didn't fare much better. The new Prime Minister, Pachachi, and the Foreign Interior Minister did echo the last Prime Minister's more... Um, conciliatory policies, but the new cabinet um, included the Minister of Interior, Al-Umari, and the Minister of Defence, Tahseen Ali, and they were the ones really leading the opposition against conciliation. Only one minor term was actually agreed to, and that was the distribution of free grain and cloth, but only as this sort of one-time surface-level gesture. If anything, it was insulting for Barzani to have only been able to achieve this basic loan. Plans were set in motion to build new schools and hospitals and social services um, in the Kurdish regions, but progress on that front would soon end once the tensions reached uh, fever pitch again. Now, I just want to pause here because I've been talking so far in this season a lot about politics and agreements and lofty ideas on isms. But I'm hoping that as you've been listening, you're also picking up on the economic issues that are really coming to the forefront. So economics or just general access to money and, de and the development that comes with money goes hand in hand with political aims. And as I read the literature, the recurring problem Kurds face is that with political ostracization, the result of that is economic deprivation and underdevelopment. So we need to be mindful that causes of Kurdish resentment is also rooted in what was quite an acute situation of the average Kurdish peasant and worker who found themselves in poverty just stone-cold poverty, relying on quite meagre agricultural outputs and not receiving government funds proportional to their, you know, population and their areas, whilst that money was going disproportionately to the growing city's majority Arab areas. Now, from 1932 to 1938, the new policies greatly hurt Kurdish families, of the fifth, of the forty-six, sorry, forty-six families in Iraq who owned over eighteen thousand six hundred acres of land, only eleven of them were Kurdish. And then within that small Kurdish faction, only about two of them actually owned the majority of the land in total. So it was disproportionate on two lines, both from the Arabs and then within the Kurds as well. In the Erbil district, 45 out of 65 villages who were entirely 
uh, Kurdish populated were owned exclusively by absent Turkish notables. So there was a real situation of opposing forces, that there was a growing intellectual elite in the Kurds in the sort of cities, and then some of the Kurdish tribes who had land prioritised that over national aspirations and maintained relations with the central government. And all of that had this negative effect on the average Kurd by not, you know, accessing development or money. And that's one big reason why, as time moves on into the 40s and the Cold War is starting to heat up, ideas like socialism and communism start circulating and many Kurds latch on to these ideas and economic ideas like redistribution, wealth equity, investment, it really takes the forefront. Of course, money was always an issue even before the 20th century, but if we think back to the High Ottoman period, the Kurdish princes, yes, they had to pay taxes and send gifts to the sultans, but they did have that economic independence um, to spend as they wanted and to distribute as they as they saw fit. And I'm not saying that it, that it was a perfect system, but when the nation states, when that takes root in the mid-20th century, with nationalisation comes capitalism in its most sort of crude form and corruption on a greater scale. There's one historian who talks about the Kurds in the Turkish context and he developed this term for the rural Kurds as under underdevelopment. So this, these two unders pointing to the significance of lack of money as being a key cause of, of their resentment and their, and their resistance. And it's why in the organisation of the PKK, who began as a communist movement, that one key strand was to achieve political independence, we would also have economic independence. Okay, so we'll go back to Badazani. So we left off with Badazani still facing a disgruntled Iraqi Arab cabinet, and in turn the cabinet was still refusing to grant a general amnesty to the Kurdish civil and army officers and demanding the return of all Kurdish arms and weapons. The Iraqis knew their demands were steep and that the Kurds would not accept them and therefore it served as a method to just provoke the Badazanis further. Now, a mistake was made on the part of the Kurds, and that was um, their consistent reliance or their belief that the British would support them, even though it was obvious that sort of this is 1940 by now, um, that the British were going to prioritise Arab demands over the Kurds. I don't know if it's fair to call it a mistake, maybe more of a tactical error, but then again, the Kurds were up against a majority Arab population who were backed by a world power, the British. Syria was the same. Turkey by the mid-40s was knee-deep in Turkification, and Iran is carrying out its Pahlavi anti-Kurdish policies. Whereas the Kurds in Iran were able to acquire Soviet Union support with the help of World War II, Iraq was under sole British control. So the Badazanis were really cut off from accessing outside backing or, or support. So in 1945, the Iraqis start making some moves against the Badazanis. 
The first thing they do is mobilise their army columns to the north of Iraq. Um, they told Mustafa Barzani that this was just a mountainous army training practice. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but an unfortunate event, which was the supposedly accidental killing of a Barzani leader, restarted the war. Iraqi operations were actually successful this time, and this is mostly because the cabinet minister, um, Mustafa al-Umari, he used tribal levies to divide and conquer the Kurdish tribes by offering um, Barzani supporters much-needed money. He was able to pit Kurd against Kurd, which was obviously useful for him. As I've said, um, the Kurds were, and they still are, trained in mountainous guerrilla warfare, which was something the Iraqis had struggled with previously. So by mid-September 1945, Mustafa Barzani had suffered a terrible loss and defeat. The defection of several Kurdish tribes previously loyal to him and the bombardment of Iraqi military force led him to finally flee to Iran. He would end up taking around 2,000 to 3,000 of his fighters through the Kalishan Pass into Iran and they sought refuge with Qazi Muhammad, who at this time, as we know, was also starting to stir up Kurdish autonomy in Iran. The political party he were was disbanded after the failure of this rebellion. Majid Mustafa, the Kurdish minister, is perhaps the most overlooked figure in this whole Kurdish chapter. He was accused from both sides, so the Arabs accused him of being a Hiwa spy, of agitating from the inside and trying to give in to Kurdish demands. And then on the other side, some of the Kurdish leaders questioned his integrity and attributed the failure of the agreements to him. There's no rigorous evidence that he was either of these things. And he's a classic example in history of an individual who was given this really thankless, impossible task as a peacemaker between two factions who, in 1945, were viewing peace as this unattainable goal. Right, so let's take a pause on the Barzanis and have a discussion on Iraqi nationalism from the 20s right through to the 50s. And to do that, we're going to learn about a seminal moment in Iraqi history, which was the 1958 revolution. We're also going to talk about the period of um, rule after the revolution, led by Abdul Karim Qasim from 1958 to 1963. So ever since its establishment, Iraq had not only had to sort of wrestle with Kurdish nationalism, but also with a wider Iraqi one. When Mosul was added to Iraq after 1926 and Iraq was ruled directly by Britain until 1932 and then the post-World War I situation of Turkey and Iran emerging as these sovereign states, these all sort of were influencing factors which shaped Iraq greatly. Later on, developments in Syria and Egypt, particularly the rise of one of the Middle East's most prominent icons, Jamal Abdel Nasser, and the movement known as Nasserism and other extreme forms of nationalism, these, these all coloured um, Iraqi national aspirations. When it comes to Iraq, it had its borders. It was a whole state with growing sovereignty, but it wrestled for years with what type of nationalism was going to come out on top. And as I said from at the beginning, the central government's failure to merge the competing communal groups under this one banner 
fueled its conflicts. And linked with this was the central government's really visceral fear that any submission to Kurdish demands would trigger a secessionist movement and Iraq would be split into these sort of smaller sub-states of a Kurdish state, an Arab Sunni one, and then Arab uh, Shia one as well. And this territory obsession underlines its problems. In 1925, King Faisal I said, I consider that Mosul is to Iraq as the head is to the rest of the body. So with the Kurds, who pretty much um, have a sort of half majority on, on Mosul, this, this idea of land and territory control was always going to um, fuel conflict. So, no sooner had Iraq been set up in 1920 that efforts were made by Arab nationalists in the education system to instill a new modern type of Arab identity into the Iraqi people. So from the onset, they were working in an ethnic context. Iraqi would become synonymous with Arab. Unlike Kurdish nationalism, which would continue to mix nationalist aspirations with um, their religious scholars, Iraqi nationalism completely did away with the religious classes and took a more secular approach to um, identity, one that harked back to history and legacy and, of course, ethnicity as well. And this is quite typical of a lot of the up-and-coming post-colonial movements which try to model themselves on the West in terms of the separation or the removal of religion from state and politics. So there's two types or two strands of nationalism taking shape in Iraq. There's an ethnic one known as Qawmiyya and then a territorial one known as Wataniyya. The ethnic type takes its name or its root from qawm, which translates into kinspeople. And the second one comes from the verb watana, meaning to settle, to dwell in an area. And that refers to homeland and territory. So when we talk about pan-Arabism, it gets a bit complicated because different factions prioritise either one or they mix the two strands together. Now, one of the earliest education ministers, Al-Husri, uh, in the Iraqi cabinet, he was a Qawmi nationalist. So for him, the idea of having all these different Arab states was wrong. It was an aversion for him to the nature of the Arabs who should have been united, not split between sort of five, six new countries. So for him, his vision was to um, unite the Arabs together under this common banner of ethnicity um, a shared love for their heritage, for their history, even archaeology was was really um, prioritised by him. So gradually then, in Iraq, the borders were set, there was a legal code, a capital, an army, and more importantly, the printing press and the education system, which was moving steadily towards instilling this new um, Wataniya-based nationalism into the population. Of course, these developments were quite precarious for the British, who were now against educating the people of Iraq because it would create a class of educated youths who might start getting, quote, radical ideas. Yet despite British pushback, the pan-Arab subscribers pushed ahead. But like all forms of nationalism, this burgeoning Iraqi one was a double-edged sword because the smarter 
Arab clans embraced this new political outfit and they enjoyed and they reached the um, the comforts of being a privileged elite in this new system. But as they took power, they wanted to keep it. And suddenly the idea of sharing that power with the Arabs in Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine wasn't looking too great anymore. So at some point in the late 30s, there's a split and a shift. So the shift was moving away from a Qawmiya nationalism, so that's more based on like ethnicity, towards a Wataniya one, based on territory. And then the split came from that shift. So there was still a group of pan-Arabists who wanted to unite all Arabs, but there was also a growing number of staunchly Iraqi nationalists. They wanted to maintain their border in Iraq and keep a hold of their power. Regardless of the shift, though, the common denominator was anti-British sentiment. The national press in Baghdad was now producing endless calls to end British rule, to evacuate British troops out of the country. And it wasn't explicit, but there was this sort of wave of democratic feel that people wanted to figure out for themselves what kind of country Iraq would be. And from this wave, a new... Uh, sort of like a new wave of political parties and clubs emerged. So there was one called the People's Society formed in 1931, which was more socialist in nature, democratic, and was part of the Iraqi nationalist group. In 1934, the Iraqi Baghdad Club opened, which had links to the new Iraqi Communist Party as well. In 1935, there was also a new club set up. This one was more radical, was more fascist in its pan-Arabist aims called Al-Muthanna. And they borrowed a lot from European fascism um, at this time, so from Mussolini, from um, Adolf Hitler as well. One of the most vocal figures of the of the club was called Sami Shokat, and he gave this notorious speech in 1933 titled The Manufacture of Death. And he took his inspiration from Mussolini, from Ataturk, from Hitler, that only purely military strength would bring the Arab nations together and expel the foreigners. The foreigners were never really properly sort of defined. Um, so these were all members of this new rising intelligentsia and they were being watched by the Iraqi central government who reflected their, their hopes and their visions. Now the last important thing to grasp in this growing sort of nationalist field was the role of the military because alongside all these competing ideas the military was now starting to really take a hold um, on Iraqi governance. The most prominent example is in the Sami Shokat um, example, and he became the leader of a paramilitary organization called Al Futowa, and they targeted secondary school teachers and particularly secondary school students. Another paramilitary unit was called Al Jawal, which as early as 1934 was given a government license to pursue open work in targeting young men to join the army. And they were sort of became like the brown shirts of Nazi Germany. And so, so, so they were like German paramilitary units who would later form Hitler's um, stormtroopers, the SA. So this interwar period was not just happening in Europe in terms of the swell of extremist nationalism militarism, but also happening in Iraq as well. And consequently, the army um, became a tool of state building and it opened up a new phase in Iraqi history where the military rose to 
eventually have very far-reaching powers. Now, the Kurds are also dabbling in their own political parties. So 1946, Mustafa Barzani, who's still in exile in Iran, he forms the KDP, the Kurdistan Democratic Party. Um, as well as that, the, com- uh, the communists start to enter the Kurdish mainstream as well in Iraq. Within the Iraqi Communist Party, a Kurdish communist group formed known as Shorish, which means revolution in Kurdish, and they set up the Rizgari Kurd Party, Liberating Kurdish Party, and they gained a number of supporters, about 6,000 students from Baghdad, Sleimani, Erbil, and they even made contact with Barzani while he was still in Iran. So the Iraqi Communist Party was this mix of both Arabs and Kurds who were taken by the socialist agenda. But then at this juncture, an uncomfortable tension started to become apparent, and that was the Kurds wanted to be part of Iraq and wanted this new socialist system, but they also didn't want to lose sight of a wider Kurdish movement. And so this led to divisions between the two groups. On the other hand, Arab communists had to wrestle with their own beliefs because the communists believed in self-determination. A really tricky term because essentially it means that you would be okay with the Kurdish um, faction separating and if that's what they self-determine. So the KDP and the Iraqi Communist Party, they did have this collaborative period where they worked together to field candidates in primary elections, and the KDP and Barzani moved towards a more socialist way of thinking. They both advocated for the end of the Iraqi monarchy and to have some sort of popular republic installed. However, because of their competing ethnic sort of strands, there was always going to be this tension between the two, and that would simply exacerbate as, as time went on. Okay, last part. Let's talk about the fall of the Hashemite monarchy in Iraq. So in late 1956, something significant happens, and that's the Syria's crisis. Now, earlier in 1952, the political figure of Jamal Abu Nasser, he had overthrown the monarchy in Egypt and he'd become president by June 1956. Now, Egypt had previously been under the control of the British and the French, so this was a major shock to the, um, to the Western powers. Now, Nasserism, as it became known, encompassed this idea of all of Nasser's sort of politics, which was anti-colonial, anti-imperial, he talked about social justice, land reforms, and more importantly, this pan-Arabist vision he had. And he called for a united Arab, Arab republic as well. So Nasser is in Egypt calling for anti-imperialism and pan-Arab rule. And that's going to have an effect, of course, on Iraqi domestic affairs because they're watching this. There's broad support for it and they wanted their own revolution to oust the British. So I'm not going to spend time explaining the stages of the revolution in July 1958, as it will take too long, but the key components are that there was this clean sweep of British influence in terms of the old landed classes, they were removed, the monarchy was removed, and it ushered in a new phase of military um, rule into the country. The royal family, they were shot dead with machine guns in the courtyard of their palace. Martial law was imposed, a new council and cabinet was set up, and they declared Iraq as a newfound republic. The notable figure 
a leader of this revolution was the army officer um, Qasim. He was the leader of a faction called the Free Officers, and they were the ones responsible for deposing the monarchy. Now, Qasim wasn't this staunch ideologue. He was a more practical-minded um, person, but the vision he had was very much an Iraqist nationalism, the Watani stem of nationalism. On the other side, his own brother, Abdusalam Arif, he was more Qawmiya, so he supported um Nasser in his as in sorry Nasser as in the Nasserist in in Iraq and this split was going to cause a headache for Qasim as the new leader because he didn't buy into Nasser's pan-arabist ideals he was more determined to centralize maintain Iraq's territory sovereignty so Iraq had almost come around full circle. Back in the late 20s, Faisal I had advocated for this pan-Arabist ideal but failed to do so. And then they went through a period where they became more Iraqi nationalist. And then Nasser comes along in Egypt, revives that and sort of um, brings brings that idea back into the hearts and minds of the Arabs and then Qasim comes into power who is against that. And so this friction um, between the different strands of Iraqi nationalism is going to not just impact the Arabs themselves but also have an impact on the Kurds and the figure of Mustafa Barzani as well. Okay so we're going to end it here to prevent this from becoming too long an episode. I've already hit the 52 minutes mark so if you've reached this far into the episode thank you so much for sticking it out. I hope it was um, relatively clear um, so next episode, I will discuss Qasim's rule in more detail, how it affected the return of Mustafa Barzani and the Kurds, and then the subsequent Kurdish-Iraqi war of 1961-65. to I'll also try to bring in the Ba'athists because I've held off on mentioning them because otherwise it'll be too much. We'll discuss how the war ends, Qasim's gruesome downfall, the arrival of the Ba'athis and Saddam Hussein and the role of American politics led by Henry Kissinger, who's a really key figure um, to just know about more generally in 20th century history and the US betrayal of the Kurdish cause in 1975. So this was Voicemails from History with your host Nujda Amin. Thank you so much for listening. As always, let me know if you enjoyed the episode or want to discuss anything I mentioned in more detail. I'd love to have a conversation. Until then, keep up to date with the next episode um, coming out and book reviews in general by following the Instagram page Voicemails from History. Thank you and see you next time.